Hello, private equity. The summertime has arrived, and with it, the special summer edition of the Unquote PE podcast. We take a glimpse into the future of European private equity, find out what a dark kitchen is, and discuss all the other hot topics that came out of Unquote's international fundraising event, Allocate. All that and more on this episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello and welcome to this special summer edition of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Today we'll be bringing you the highlights of Allocate, which is the UK's international private equity event hosted by Unquote. Between the 19th and the 21st of June, we spent two and a half days at the Grove in Hertfordshire discussing the future of private equity with more than 200 LPs and GPs plus some of our advisory partners. But prior to that, we had a barbecue and played some golf in a tournament sponsored by Ashurst. Gareth, you led the LP team. How were conditions on the day? Uh, I think it's pretty fair to say conditions were relatively soggy, Oscar. We played about six holes in some pretty light rain, six holes in some beautiful sunshine, and then the last uh, eight ho- six holes in a torrential downpour. So by the end, I was more than happy to get inside and to get stuck into the barbecue. Yeah, and there was also a cycling event, which was sponsored by Travis Smith, uh, where everyone got very wet. Um, but in any case, I understand fun was had by all. So I think if we move on to the main event, on the morning of the first day, we were joined by around 200 delegates and also the rest of the Unquote team who also join us here in the studio. We've got podcast first timer and Unquote DAC reporter, Catherine Hidalgo. Welcome, Kat. Thanks for having me, Oscar. And we've also got Unquote France and Benelux reporter Francesca Veronese. Welcome back, Fran. Thanks, Oscar. It's great to be back. So we've got a full studio today to give the pod a bit of a send-off for the summer. Kat, we'll start with you as this was your first event with Unquote. How did you find it? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought everything was really fascinating. Uh, I, I one, one thing that I really liked about it was the diversity of the panels, for sure. Um, but yeah, it was a really great event. Uh, really interesting to meet all the different uh, sorts of people, the different advisors. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. And Fran, what about you? What was your favourite panel, for example, or a takeaway theme from the event? I think I really enjoyed um, the the panel discussing disruption um, in portfolio companies. It's really interesting to see how um, different actors are, are handling disruption. Um, so anything from VCs um, to corporates themselves, there was a really diverse um, perspective on it. Yeah, it was a really interesting panel and lots of kind of crossover players on that. We had kind of Partech, who have obviously recently launched this program to co-invest alongside private equity. We also had kind of VT partners who are kind of at that intersection as well, um, as well as some more traditional VCs. Um, and how about you, Gareth? What, what did you find were the sort of main takeaways from the event, maybe on a bit of a broader? Sure. Um, I think the key takeaway for me was the pace of change that's that's happening in the economy. Obviously, we'll hear from Froda later on, um, CEO of, of the Post Lean Institute, and I always enjoy hearing his 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 insight into how how businesses are changing and adapting to to what's an increasingly fragmented uh, economy. Uh, I also enjoyed Czech Warner's speech about um, millennials and Gen Z. There are some pretty interesting insights in there. I think my, the one thing that's kind of stuck with me has been the attention span. As a millennial, my attention span is about 12 seconds, apparently, compared to about eight seconds for, for a Gen Z. So hearing how, uh, um, how, how kind of that relates to, to private equity and, and what that means for both portfolio companies, um, how they are set up, how they operate, and, and also kind of hiring within the PE industry. Um, I thought that was that was really interesting. Absolutely, and, and always interesting to uh, see a room full of kind of private equity executives 
tested on their, their terminology, the, the terminology used by younger people. I think, was it JOMO? It was JOMO, yeah. I wonder if any of our listeners know what JOMO means. Kat and Fran actually missed the presentation. Can you tell us what JOMO means? As a Gen Z, no, I can't tell you what JOMO means. <laughs> it's the, the joy of missing out. Because oh. apparently Gen Z are much happier to stay in. They don't necessarily crave the experiences that millennials have been characterized as uh, looking for. So... Um, yeah, very, definitely very interesting, very insightful, and uh, hope to have checked back at some point. Uh, maybe even get her on the pod. Mm, that would be really good. good. Yeah. Um, but as you mentioned, Gareth, next up we've got Frodo Odegaard uh, from the Post Lean Institute talking to me about his work on disruption and how it affects private equity. And we'll be back with that interview after this. Hello, listener. I'm here at Allocate uh, with Froda Odegaard from the Post Lean Institute. Uh, now, Froda, before we get started, you've just given a very interesting keynote to the conference here, but um, could you just tell our listeners who you are, uh, what the Post Lean Institute is, and the kind of main aims? So, the Post Lean Institute is a Silicon Valley based um, research and advisory firm. Um, we basically work on developing new management thinking for the post-industrial transition that we're in. And we advise uh, investors in private equity, GPs and LPs, um, as well as corporates on how to navigate uh, this transition. Okay, you started off the talk today uh, by talking about kind of the macro trends over the last kind of 12,000 years, which characterize... Uh, post-industrial society. Could you maybe briefly outline that for us? Sure. So we spent uh, about a year looking at um, how we could relate progress in technology to how humans organize themselves in terms of our economies and our, our societies, our cultures, um, starting at the end of the, the Stone Age, at the Paleolithic. And what we found was that each time there was a significant progress in technology, for example, um, exploring part-time agriculture, settling down in a Neolithic um, you know, 10,000 years ago, full-time agriculture, um, and then later on in the Bronze Age, and we, we get cities, uh, city-states writing, political organizations in the first empires, uh, and then fast forward to Industrial Revolution, you see this correlation between progress in technology and a change in how we organize ourselves in particular, in such a way that we became more and more centralized. Um, so out of the Industrial Revolution, we get mass production, which is a, a fantastic progress in terms of having to, to spend less less amount of our time working to create value. Just quickly, uncentralized, you mean in terms of centralization of power, centralization of technology? What's centralization of, of, uh, of management of, of people and assets, basically. And so... Um, What's happening now is that the last 10, 20 years is we have the commercial internet, we have smartphones. It now becomes possible to implement business models like those of uh, Airbnb and Uber and so on. There are, are we call them marketplace organizations where you basically can decouple people and assets from firms and you can manage people and assets remotely in a way that's done using software as opposed to using managers. Um, and that's, that's basically the beginning of massive decentralization um, in the economy. And at the same time, technology development has accelerated. So we actually now have a combination of exponential technology development as of the 1970s in, in terms of computation and storage and communications capacity. 
and that coupled with, with uh, the beginning of massive decentralization. And that's changed on an anthropological scale. It's not just digitalization, it's not just disruption. It's a really deep thing for, for a human civilization. Do we not see some forms of centralization coming back? For example, centralization of data, like the big tech firms seem to have concentrated a lot of that and right. still capital, right? Um, so there's a, there's a British economist named Ronald Coase who published a paper back in 1937 um, called The Nature of the Firm, where he talks about the economic trade-offs in terms of transaction overhead for doing things inside of the firm as opposed to outsourcing. And back then he anticipated that the telephone and the telegraph, which was still relatively new innovations, um, would help firms uh, reduce the overhead and reduce the amount of management mistakes for managing things remotely. And of course, now because we have the internet and we have software and so on, yeah, we can we can automate um, management of people and assets um, in a firm that actually employs them. It's just that it's less capital efficient to do that than to have business models like like those of Airbnb and Uber. So what's going to happen is, for example, with Amazon, which now employs more than 600,000 people, is as, as soon as a lot of that blue-collar work, because a lot of those people are doing blue-collar you know, commodity work, basically, um, as soon as it becomes possible to automate, uh, they will shed those kinds of jobs uh, quite rapidly. Um, and so, so it's a temporary centralization in terms of accumulating a lot of employees and so on, because it's either that or, or, or just postpone what they're doing until the technology is ready. And of course, they don't want to do that because they want to capture share, market share. Okay. So, so supposing we definitely accept this, what does this mean for private equity from a top-level perspective? Well, I think it, um, uh, there, there are several key implications. So one is that private equity has looked at technology through an efficiency lens. So technology was a means to, and it's definitely a sort of industrial era mindset. Technology is a means to automating things, to reducing operating costs, to improving margins. Um, but what technology is actually doing is, is it's causing structural change in industries. Um, and that means that you have companies, you have assets that suddenly become much less valuable because they're no longer relevant. And Clayton Christensen, who is the, the known for, in, for introducing the term disruptive innovation, he studied the relationship between technology architectures and supply chains, where people will jump over to a different supply chain network or a different value network because they're all going for a different technology architecture, like going from old-fashioned cameras to digital cameras, for example. Um, what we've done is we've studied how existing value networks, or we call them value graphs, are being rewritten, are being restructured uh, um, because of this, this technology. And this has significant implications for, uh, for GPs because you may have existing portfolio companies in industries that were previously safe and predictable. You knew what the KPIs were. You knew how to create a value uh, creation uh, thesis. And, and monitor to make, you know, make sure that you're executing on the value creation plan. And now suddenly those industries are being, uh, being disrupted and your value creation uh, plan you know, may no longer be, be valid. And it also has implications for, for acquisition of new portfolio companies. So now you have a situation where you have more than a trillion dollars of dry powder. You have had artificially low interest rates in most of the developed world uh, for, for quite a while. So there's cheap capital available for corporate buyers. So they're you know, bidding up the asset prices. And at the same time, private equity firms' ability to add value in that environment using the same value creation methodologies they used in the past is in doubt. 
Um, so they're caught between the, the rock okay. and a hard place. Basically. So it's mostly at the kind of level of their portfolio companies, or do you think these methods can also be applied at the level of the private equity firm itself? Does it need to transform the way it operates at the GP level? Absolutely, yeah. So, so, so one of the things we've talked about is how um, it's very attractive from an LP perspective to get some type of a combination of the, the innovation you see from venture but with the, with the sort of discipline um, and constancy that you are more used to seeing for private equity, and we think there's going to be a hybrid asset class to finance what we call higher order organizations, which are which are, are entities that are set up to build new organizations from scratch but with a consistent value creation methodology, a consistent way of analyzing the structure of these industries and be able to come up with a value creation thesis based on not something that you apply on a deal-by-deal deal or firm-by-firm firm basis, but what you're trying to do, um, whether it's a fund or, or just a pledge fund, what you're trying to do is to cap- capitalize on how an industry industry structure is being rewritten. So you can attack that industry from multiple vantage points. Uh, so we think we're going to see that. Uh, so the, the basic business model of private equity it probably has to be revisited as well. And can you see any early examples of that in the market at the moment? Yeah, uh, there's there's one firm uh, I think is quite interesting, which is... Um, uh, Arwana Capital, which is based in Sydney and also in London, um, that's one of the, the early adopters to some of this uh, this kind of thinking. Uh, we also advise in London a high-order organization called um, uh, Moonwalk, um, which originally started in, in, uh, in Oslo. They moved to London a year ago. They built a portfolio of 18 companies, I think it is, um, and, um, and they're now uh, putting together a financing architecture. Uh, for that as well, so we think this is going to be a mainstream, mainstream model. It's going to be very attractive to, to LPs, and I think a lot of GPs are going to start looking at this as a as a new product that they can offer to LPs as well. Great. Well, we'll definitely look out for both of the examples you mentioned, and look out for examples of the trend more generally uh, in our coverage at Unquote. Uh, Freda, thank you very much for your time, and uh, we will speak to you soon. Great to be with you. So that was Frode Odegaard of the Post Lean Institute summing up his keynote to me at Allocate. Um, and he, something interesting that Frode said to me afterwards, he used to introduce his keynote by saying, this is the borderline of science and science fiction, sort of very dramatic way he likes to introduce things. Um, but he stopped doing it because people didn't realize it was a joke and then they didn't take the theory seriously because they thought it was science fiction. But actually, he's very serious about this. And we already see these kind of themes emerging across lots of different industries and within private equity. One of the panels which particularly brought, brought this out was the food consumption panel, which I know you watched, Gareth. Did you see this? any of the themes from Froda's keynote being highlighted in this panel? Absolutely. I think um, the food industry is actually a really, really good example of how technology is causing structural change within an industry. Um, and, and the sorts of people that we had speaking were very, very good examples of that. We had um, Spiros from from Global Venture Partners who's been very involved with Delivery Hero. So that kind of model of of changing consumption around food and, and people expecting... And that you know, was the virtual kitchens discussion, wasn't it? Yes, he was. Yeah. So he was talking about not just the kind of change in trend in consumption, but also how technology and artificial intelligence can help them with um, actually building kitchens in the most optimal location to get food to the most people as, uh, so it's as fresh as possible. Yeah, I also is- discovered that dark kitchen and virtual kitchen are the same thing because I'd previously thought dark kitchen was just robots. 
<laughs> obviously they don't need lights to cook but i think we're still a little way off that one perhaps so maybe maybe in next year's allocate we can yeah, talk exactly. about all the robot kitchens um and we also had lots of interesting people talking about the kinds of investments that they made uh, on the production food production kind of things cat i know you you kind of took some some pretty interesting notes around around that. Yeah, well, I was really interested in the kind of specific investments that some of the, the people on the panel were, were making. So, for example, Alistair Cooper at, from ADM Capital had some really fascinating investments. For example, he's invested in Aero Farm in, in the US. Uh, so it's a vertical farm. And it's just incredible the things that they're doing. You know, um, they get 300 times their, their field grown yield. Um, and he really stressed how tech enabled these sorts of farms are. You know, they've got sensors everywhere. They're they're really utilizing big data and AI, and uh, it's just really impressive what what they can do. Um, also, he talked about um, other uh, other uh, ventures that he had. So, for example, he's invested in a nano bubble technology a company. He he said that he had to. Uh, he spent six months trying to convince them to let him invest, which I thought was very interesting. Um, so you can kind of uh, make make water more buoyant to kind of reduce the amount of water that you need in, in fish farming, for example. He talked about a cricket farm that he was invested in um, to reduce food waste. Uh, so I thought that was I thought uh, his specific ventures were really interesting and very disruptive. Absolutely, and you can definitely see where Frodo gets the science fiction comparison when we're talking about vertical farms. Mm. It makes me think of well, I think first of the Matrix. Obviously, that's a different sort of farm, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure I've seen that in other sci-fi films as well. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely fair to say that kind of the themes from Frodo's speech ran through many of the panels we don't have time to talk about all of them today unfortunately as gareth you already mentioned uh diversity vc's check one who sort of honed in on the challenge and the disruption posed by generation z entering the workforce yeah we're not going to get time to to speak about all of the other panels um so i have hope to see you at allocate next year that is all we've got time for so thank you very much to my panel here in the studio to froda to all of our allocate partners and sponsors And to you, Luke, too, listener, uh, we'll be back when Series 2 kicks off in September. In the meantime, you can listen back to the first series on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Unquote.com. We'll speak to you soon. Bye.